Well, there was a church father by the name of Ambrose, and he told a story. He said it was a fable about a young Christian man. Sometimes the story is erroneously um, attributed to Augustine. The story is about a young man who um, he, uh, he had a mistress, and he got to know her very well. Uh, and he was a bit of a philanderer as a young man. Later on in life, he became a Christian. And at, since becoming a Christian, his life had radically changed. Uh, he ran into his old mistress, one of his old mistresses, out in uh, the public square one day. And she uh, said uh, to the young man, Hey, young man, it's, it's me. And, um, and he didn't seem to... Uh, pay her much attention. And so she, she said it again, young man, it's me. And then he, without blinking an eye, kept walking and said, yes, but it's not me anymore. It's not me anymore. What did the young man mean by that? It's not me anymore. Like, who am I? And how do I know who I am? Adele, the famous pop singer, she's only put out four albums. Can you believe that? Four albums, and yet she has broken uh, so many records, gotten so many um, awards, and, uh, and has sold so many records. But because she's put out so few records, people wait kind of with bated breath on her next one. Uh, this one took a while to come out, but she just produced last year 30, and it was released. And the album is actually, as fans anticipated it and said, Adele, one fan asked, Adele, what's the album about? She said, divorce, baby, divorce. It's all actually about her processing her divorce. And what's interesting about it is in the interviews and such, when she talks about her marriage, she says that actually she had a good husband. He wasn't bad. And her marriage, there wasn't anything wrong with it. She just said it wasn't fulfilling. In one interview, she said it didn't meet her expectations and that she just truly couldn't be herself in the marriage. In other words, for Adele, this was an identity question. Who am I? And I just can't be me in the marriage. But, but how would she know who she was? We say today, you do you. It's a very famous phrase. That what we mean by that, at least when we're not using it kind of uh, as a slight is you do what you think is best for yourself. You march to the beat of your own drum. You uh, do whatever is right for you, whatever that may be. Do what's right for you. You do you. Be true to yourself. But again, this raises this question, who am I? And how would I know? How do you know who you is? You know, there are various ways of answering this question. Traditionally, there was one way of answering the question. Traditionally, people answer this question by looking to their family. I'm a member of this family. By looking to their community. This is who my community says that I am, and this is where I sit within the community. And they look to their body and its relationships in the world, including their work. And they said, this is who I am. I'm a man, I'm a woman, and I'm a carpenter, right? 
This is how we answered that question. Now, however, there's been a radical shift in how we answer this question of identity. Now we answer it by looking in rather than looking out. We say you need to look to your deepest desires and your deepest feelings. We have this kind of supposition that each of us has our own unique way of realizing our humanity. And what's important is to find that and live it and be true to our own self-understanding. In his book, Fractured Republic, Yuval Levin puts it like this. He says, people not only have a desire, people today not only have a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. That's Adele, I just wasn't fulfilled. It's a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in society by fully asserting who you are. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights. And it's given pride of place in our self-understanding. What's he saying? He's saying that today we see uh, this as, as the most basic right about looking inside, discovering who I am, and then being able to assert that, assert that in the world. Otherwise, it's oppressive. Now, that's an academic way of putting it. Let me tell you a Disney way of putting it. Let it go. Let it go. Have you heard this movie, Frozen? If you haven't, like, welcome to the world. Yeah. Peter. Peter hasn't heard of Frozen. If you haven't heard of Frozen, you and Peter can watch it together. So there was this movie called Frozen, and I've seen it probably a thousand times. So I know, I know about this movie, Frozen. Kids were singing it everywhere. The, the movie is really about this understanding of self-identity. In fact, in the key song, Let It Go, right before your eyes, the character changes from a traditional understanding of how do I find my identity to the new, more modern understanding. Just listen to it. She says, don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girls you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. It's a putting the traditional way of understanding your identity in the most kind of crass and crude way possible, but it's, you know, keep up with what everybody expects of you, who they say you are, but then it changes. Let it go, let it go. Don't hold back anymore. I don't care what they're going to say. Say, no longer is that going to define me. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm free. That's what Levin is talking about, that this is now equated with freedom. Now, this question is the pressing question of our day. It swirls and hovers around all our debates and discussions about pronouns and gender and sexuality and race and marriage and divorce and abortion. Who am I? And how do I know who I am? Well, we have been in a series on the book of Galatians. 
And I have said that this is a radical and explosive book. And, and Paul, he leaves all the sharp edges there. He doesn't file any sharp edges down. He doesn't say, well, this is true, but you need to balance it with this, or you need to put it in relation to this, or keep it in perspective. He just lays it out there, and he keeps all the sharp edges there. And probably the most radical uh, statements that he makes in this book are, con are uh, concerning this question, who am I? How do I know who I am? And what he says here is absolutely countercultural. And Paul lived in an ancient traditional society. In other words, this is countercultural to an understanding of personal identity in a traditional society, but it is also, I would say, and we will see, countercultural to this new way of understanding our identity as well. See, who am I? Paul begins by saying, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know who a Christian is, a Christian is one who confesses that I am one who has died. Verse 19, I died to the law. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. He goes, he goes on, I no longer live. Now, I memorized this verse as a kid. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith, uh, in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, I have said that verse to myself over and over and over again. It is so poignant. It, it, there's something like poetic about it. But have you ever stopped to consider what it actually means? What would it mean to say, I no longer live? I've been crucified. Luther got it. He said, this, this is strange and unheard of, this, this kind of speech. One early, uh, very famous commentator on the Bible and biblical scholar named Albert Schweitzer, who was also a doctor and an archaeologist, and I don't know how many lives the guy lived to be an expert in all these things, um, but in, he was at the turn of the 1900s around, and he said that Paul's language here is inconceivable, an enigma. A generation later, one of the most influential Bible scholars named Ed Sanders, he said that we have no categories through which to understand what Paul is saying. It's, it's incomprehensible. Augustine, understanding how strange this way of talking is, he said that it creates a whole new genre called the speech of the dead. It's a dead person who is speaking. They who are dead, Augustine says, are living. I mean, what could it mean? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Well, we say, well, perhaps Paul, we, we might say, perhaps Paul's saying that he has died to his sin. Maybe that's what he means when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. You know, like the young man, maybe that's what he said when he said, but it's not me anymore. Like, I've died to those sinful parts of me and those desires of me and that old self, that that is what has died. But notice, verse 19, Paul begins by saying that he died to the law. The law, which in Romans 7, he says, is holy and righteous and good. This isn't a sinful part of Paul. This is something that is holy and righteous and good. So maybe we say, no, perhaps what Paul means is that he died to, to his Jewish way of life. 
and to living the Jewish way of life. Perhaps he is, he's speaking of death metaphorically here, and, and what he means is that, that there's a change in lifestyle. Maybe that's what the young man meant when he said, it's not me anymore. I, I used to be uh, someone who was a night owl and went out on the town, but now I'm a family man. Maybe he's talking about a change of a pattern of lifestyle. And in certain respects, it's certainly true that Paul no longer lives in certain respects as a Jew. In fact, this is what raises the question in verse 17. Look, Paul says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now, to understand this question, you have to remember the context and what we looked at last week. You know, Paul has just said, he's just dropped this this bomb of an idea where he says that people are justified, considered acceptable, uh, accepted and acceptable before God, not because um, they do anything, especially because of Jewish practice, but because of what Jesus has done for them. It's the doctrine of justification by faith. And so they believe in Jesus Christ. And he says, he says, because of that, because of that, remember the reason why he talks about this doctrine is because uh, Peter was eating with Gentiles and he was abandoning the Jewish way of life in certain respects to do that. But then when certain people come and Peter thinks he's going to be judged, he gets up and he leaves. And Paul says, no, 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 Peter. We're not justified that way. And Gentiles aren't justified that way. And because we're not justified that way and Gentiles are justified that way, because that's not what makes us accepted or acceptable before God, we can eat with Gentiles. And then the question comes, well, wait a second. If we are eating with Gentiles and we're dropping the Jewish patterns of life and we're dropping the way of life of the Torah, then, then what if people think that we are sinning because of that? And would we then be sinners? If people fraternize with Gentiles, doesn't that make Christ a promoter of sin even? And Paul says, certainly not. Verse 18, for if I rebelled what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. Translation, Peter, we're playing a different game now. Have you ever seen those checkerboards where you can also play chess with them? Well, what if we were sitting there and we were playing checkers? And while we were playing checkers, uh, we played checkers, and maybe you're playing like me where I play with my grandfather. My grandfather was a fireman. Firemen work like four minutes of the day. It's really intense work, but besides that, they play checkers and shine shoes. That guy knew how to shine a shoe, and he was amazing at checkers. So when I would start playing checkers with him, it was game over immediately. But I was in the chess club, so I said, Grandpa, how about we play chess now? And that was a more even match. So we would clear the board, and then we would set up the chess pieces. Well, what if while we were setting up the chess pieces, and after we had set it up, I moved my pawn, the little guy on the front, and I moved him forward two spaces. And after I moved it forward two spaces, what if someone stopped and they said, whoa, 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 that's breaking the rules. You can only go diagonal, and you can't move two spaces unless you jump over somebody. Well, I would say, well, yeah, that would be breaking the rule if we were still playing checkers. And if I cleared the board and rebuilt what I had already tore down, if I rebuilt the checker game, then I would be breaking the rule. But we're not playing by those rules anymore. We're playing a new game, Peter. So Paul clearly means that his relationship to the law has died, but he means much more. 
Because in chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says that through the cross of Christ, the world, the world, the cosmos has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, that certainly includes the law. Paul goes on in verse 15, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but new creation. Circumcision and uncircumcision, those things that were basic to the Jewish way of life and to following the Torah, they no longer count for anything. Of course, his relationship to the law has changed, but his relationship to everything has changed so that what counts now is new creation. You see, because the old creation for Paul, it was all based upon the law. How he saw the whole world was through Torah. But he said that in the cross of Christ, I have died to that. You know, whether you're following the more traditional understanding of how you learn your identity and answer the question, who am I, or whether it's the more modern understanding, whether you look out or whether you look deep inside at your desires, either way, uh, we are both, uh, either way, the way that people look and find an identity in this world is by looking at, at really three things mainly. What have I done? What do I do? good and bad? What accomplishments do I have? What failures? Moral and otherwise? Career? Familial? We look to what is said. What do people say about me? In a traditional view, it's, it's how do people think about me? How do they answer the question, who am I? Do they give me honor and a more modern understanding of identity? It's who do I say that I am? What does my voice tell me that I am? That's why we were always saying, you know, you got to tell yourself you're good enough, you're smart enough, and it doesn't matter if people love you because you love yourself. We look to what's said, and we also look to what we have. The stuff we have, the money we have, the awards we have, the friends we have, the family we have, uh, the looks we have, or lack thereof. And this is how we find our identity, and we're always on this kind of identity pedestal or identity um, roller coaster. People say things good about me, but one person says something harsh, and, and, it, and it deflates me. Or uh, I can tell myself that I have these good thoughts in my head about myself, but then I just can't get this nagging feeling out that I'm just not enough. That voice inside telling me that I'm a failure. Or I have all this stuff, and then, and then stock market crashes, house is taken away, family dies or leaves. What Paul says here, though, is that all those things that we do and we say and we have, all, all those sources from which we gain our identity, our worth, and our direction, that they are cut off from us and separated from us through the violent execution of God's Son. 
that our family of origin, our social context, our economic status, our moral achievements, our sexual desire, our race, our dress, our habits, our patterns of speech, and our group membership, that every element that shaped personhood has now been nullified by the crucifixion of God's Son, that every path to fulfillment and self-fulfillment and personal fulfillment is, not cut, is now cut off from us. Why? Because at the cross of Christ, we died. And I don't think Paul means metaphorically. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Herman Melville in his famous Moby Dick has this line, Methinks we have hugely mistaken this matter of life and death. Methinks we have hugely mistaken this matter of life and death. In November of 1910, in the Grafton Galleries in London, there was an exhibit that was put up that was extremely controversial. It was entitled Manet and the Post-Impressionists. The reason that it was controversial was because it represented a new world, totally bereft of the old class system, the old economy, and the old sense of manners and customs. This struck Virginia Woolf so much um, in a symbolic way. It struck Virginia Woolf so much that she wrote, on or about 1910, human character changed. Well, Paul is saying that on or about 33 AD, human character changed. Because Paul really died with Jesus. And it wasn't a, a peaceful passing into death. No, it was a crucifixion. Crucifixion. That most violent form of death that was absolutely involuntary. Crucifixion, which people didn't name, and because they didn't name, what happened? You can't talk about crucifixion. So what about the people who have been crucified? Tell me, do you know the names of the criminals, one to the right and one to the left of Jesus? No, you don't. Crucifixion was erasure. Because you can't speak about it, it's unspeakable. And so, what happened in, in crucifixion is we find a terminus, a terminus point. So what Paul is talking about here is not the removal of an appendix. It's not an amputation. It is an annihilation of the self. As I told you, it is radical. Just let it hit you. As one scholar puts it, it's the real and total demolition of the self as previously constituted. Crucifixion, indeed, is a terminus. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live and this is the beginning of a Christian identity. Who am I? I am one who has died. I myself, in myself, am no more. And yet Paul lives on. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith. Wait, how can a dead person continue to live? Through a gift. 
See, a Christian confesses not only that I am one who has died, but a Christian says, I am one who is the recipient of a gift. Verse 20, the gift of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus was given for you. Paul opens his letter by saying, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. You see, for God to give Jesus Christ, for Jesus to be given for you, is to be given for your sins in your place. And he was given unto death. Verse 21 of our text, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. That word grace means gift. He says, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, the gift of Jesus Christ is the gift, the gift, the grace is that which culminated in his death. And the reason is, is because you and I, we stand condemned under the law's curse. That's why Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. Because when I was united with Christ, it was there that he took my place. In my place condemned, he stood. In my place, the law cursed him. And so, as Martin Luther puts it, our most merciful Father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law, sent his only Son into the world and laid upon him all the sins of all men, saying, You be Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, blasphemer and cruel, cruel oppressor, David the adulterer, that sinner who ate the apple in paradise, that thief who hung upon the cross, and briefly, you be the person who has committed the sins of all men. Be you Kyle. Be you John and Jane and Harry and Sally. Be you all the sins of all men. Be you there. Jesus was given for you and for me. But he was not only given for us, he was also given to us. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, co-crucifixion results in cohabitation. So that the life the Christian now lives is a life that's been penetrated and animated by Christ and his spirit. Christ comes to indwell us and he becomes your life. Christ's status is your status. Christ's integrity is your integrity. Christ's desires are your desires. Christ's love is your love. Christ's power is your power. Christ's potential is your potential. Christ's relationships are your relationships. A relationship to God the Father, a relationship to the Holy Spirit, and a relationship to all those who call upon the name of the Lord. Christ becomes your new identity. See, the old self was a self that sought to establish an identity by itself and for itself, and that self is dead and gone. And what comes on the other side is a resurrection, no longer I, but I in union with Jesus Christ. See, there's a movement in this passage. First, the cross of Christ has to destroy every source of humanly constructed identity, and then by miracle, the cross creates and gifts us a new identity. Here's what this means. 
It means that you are not determined and you are not defined by what you've inherited or by what you've achieved. Not by biology or biography, not by pedigree or performance, not by desires, not by uniqueness, but by Jesus Christ and his gift to you of himself and all that he is. See, to whom is this gift given? Which you is Jesus given to? to? Sinful you. Condemned you. Dead you. No longer existent you. That's the dynamic of grace. It's life out of death. It's light out of darkness. It is righteousness out of sin. And it is creation out of nothing. That's what salvation is. A putting to death of the self. Terminating it, and then by miracle, raising you up again, a new self in union with Jesus Christ. So grace, what it does is it, it does not fulfill our search for meaning and identity. It doesn't answer the question that we have about meaning and identity. No, what the cross of Jesus Christ does in the grace of Jesus Christ, it destroys our search for meaning and identity. It destroys the very question. As Paul's all says, need fulfillment is a law that is, has no possible satisfaction. Human need is limitless on its own terms. It is a bottomless well, a pail with a hole at the bottom. Grace nullifies this. The need for personal fulfillment is not met in Christianity. It is destroyed. It's radical. See, the new Paul... The Paul that now exists no longer exists by himself or for himself. He's no longer defined by himself, but he is defined by being dependent on a relationship with another. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, now his life is defined by faith, and faith is all about dependence. Cast on the life of another. Or as Augustine said, where I am not, there I more happily am me. See, a Christian confesses not only that I am one who has died, and not only that I am a recipient of a gift, but a Christian says, I am one who exists in dependence upon another. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But listen, whose faith is it? It's a question that was raised last week. What is faith? Whose faith is it? Well, listen, if life and existence now is dependent upon another, then faith is also dependent upon another. Faith cannot be your independent act that gets you into this relationship or sustains this relationship because the independent you is dead and gone, crucified, involuntarily crucified on the cross of Christ. And so the only you that is left is the you that has Christ living in you. The life I know, no longer I who live, but Christ in me. So who is believing? Christ. And you in union with Christ. That's who's believing. Because the independent you is dead and gone. And so where does this life of faith happen? Does it happen in heaven? Does it happen in the sky? Does it happen in the future? Verse 20. 
In the life I now live, I live by faith. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This life is lived in the flesh. You know, flesh is a word that Paul associates throughout this letter with circumcision. Those who make a showing of the flesh, he will say, of those who are promoting circumcision. But remember, circumcision is that place that, that was to define Paul's life before. For Paul, everything before, if you ask Paul, who are you, Paul? If you ask his old self, who are you? He would say, I am one who has been circumcised on the eighth day. If you said, who are they, Paul? He would say, they're those who haven't been circumcised. You see, circumcision was the base, the foundation of all identity. In the flesh, flesh Paul also associates with family and history and heritage. He talks about his kinsmen in Romans 9 according to the flesh. DNA and family origin, this is flesh. Flesh is your history and your heritage. Flesh is also where your works and your achievements and your awards come from. It, it's, it's, it's where you are, the place where you are judged by other people as they look at you and as you relate to other people. This is where the life of faith is lived. See, the new self comes in the embodied distance of all those old relationships that used to define us. And that means that the life of faith is a battle. A battle between all those things trying to tell you who you are. A battle between you trying to establish your own identity through what you do and what you have and what is said about you. And all those things are still there. Paul's still a Jew. He just said, we are Jews by birth, Peter. 2.16. And yet, all those things have now been remapped and recalibrated according to an identity that is not established by who he is and what he does, by not being subject, but being object, the recipient of a gift, the Son of God who has loved me and given himself for me. And that identity grounds everything. And causes him to, yes, live like a Jew and be a Jew. But that no longer determines who Paul is. His desires no longer determine who he is. His family of origin, his history, his race, that no longer determines who he is. Whether he's married or not, that doesn't no longer determines who he is. What determines who he is is the Son of God who has loved him and given himself for him. So a Christian is one who confesses not only that I am one who's died, not only that I am a recipient of a gift, and not only am I dependent on another, but a Christian is one who says, I'm dependent on another who loves me. A Christian says, I am loved. I have a friend when he's driving his kids to school he said to him, do you know what will always be true about you? This kid says, I, you know, that I'm your son or that I love you. He says, what will always be true about you is that your daddy loves you. That you are loved. Who are you? 
you are one who the Son of God loves and so gave himself for. It, it was, and it is love that holds the continuity between this old self that is now non-existent and crucified and this new self. Because you were created in love. And it was when you were a sinner that God showed his love for you and this that Christ died for you. Christ didn't show his love for you when you were good or when you were beautiful or when you were wise or when you were kind or when you were responsible, but it was when you were a sinner, when you were his enemy, when you were weak, then Christ died for you and me, and then he loved you, and he loved you to life, to beauty, to glory. Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So here's what this means. There's a continuity between the self. And it's that you have always been the object of love. And you are the object of love, not for anything that you do or have or are. It is not because of you. But rather, as Luther said in the Heidelberg Disputation, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. And so you will be loved in the end because love will make you into something beautiful so that God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. God will say, this is my beloved son and daughter in whom I am well pleased because they are the object of my gift and my love. That is who we are. Let's live like it. Let's live out of it. And Father, we do ask that you would help us to let go. No. That you would crucify us again and again and again. That we would be cut off from all the old system and its evaluations. That we might be removed as subject and might be again and again placed in the position of object, objects of your gift of grace and love, recipients of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.